0: FOSS CORPORATION, LLC. Welcome to The Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's serious moments, stories of oddness, of weirdness. Of nature gone strange, this is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Hello everyone, welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments. In 1845, a poem was published by Edgar Allan Poe that has become famous, doubly famous, triply famous over the years called The Raven. We know it's about a man who is sitting in his study and he's mourning the loss of his love Lenore. And somehow this raven gets into his house, into his study. And he has a conversation of sorts with the raven and he doesn't know if the raven is good or evil. I think he winds up thinking the raven is evil. And that's a start for our story tonight. Birds throughout the history of man in its writings and and poetry and prose have long been considered harbingers of good or harbingers of evil. Just look at some of the recent history of movies or stories regarding birds, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds where nature decided to take a swipe back at man, although on a very small scale. Well, this one is supposedly a true story, and I I use that caveat at the beginning of our story because there are some that think it's not. I'm talking about Lincoln's in Phantom Bird. There is a strange tale of a phantom bird-like creature that in 1913... Attacked and killed a young barrister, that's a lawyer, named Charles Appleby in offices connected to Lincoln's Inn, the oldest of the four inns of court in London. Now an inn of court was literally the place where lawyers lived on the outskirts of London, outside the city limits but close enough to still attend court. Many of them also did business from their rooms in the inn, seeing clients there or drawing up documents. The story goes a group of men were standing near the lodge of the legal offices at Lincoln's Inn in London on the evening of February 25, 1913, when they heard a terrified scream. They looked up and saw, silhouetted in a window, the figure of a man fighting off an invisible assailant. They rushed up the stairs to the first-floor office, but they were too late. Charles Appleby, a young barrister, lay dead on the floor, covered in blood. In the months that followed, a number of other tenants occupied the offices, but they all left because of the evil atmosphere that was present. A short while later, another barrister, John Radlick, was found hanged in the same office where Charles Appleby had been found. There were deep scratches on the inside of his locked door. They looked as if they had been made by the claws of an enormous bird. When stories began to circulate about the ghost bird that haunted the offices at Lincoln's Inn, two newspaper editors, Sir Max Pemberton and Ralph Blumenfield, decided to investigate. They locked themselves in the room sprinkled powdered French chalk all over the floor and began their vigil. The two men spent the evening playing cards and by midnight were getting mighty bored with the whole idea. But it seemed obvious that nothing untoward was going to happen. They were about to leave when the locked door swung open. The windows, which had been bolted shut, also opened by themselves and the harsh wind entered the room, extinguishing the gaslight. There was a horrific beating noise which sounded like the flapping of enormous wings. In the dim light, the men could just see a large dark object moving across the room and out through a wall. Then the noise stopped, and the light came back on. A reporter, who had been waiting downstairs, heard the commotion rushed into the room and all three men stared in disbelief at the floor. In the chalk, running from the center of the room to the corner, were a set of giant claw marks. A few years later, the building was demolished and the giant bird, if that is what it was, was never heard of again. Now, Beneath the bustle of city life, London's byways are steeped in secrets and mysteries. The Capitol's ghosts are particularly well cataloged, but the Bird of Lincoln's Inn has long since fallen from favor, despite being one of the strangest cases on record, one involving a haunted poet and a pair of violent, seemingly supernatural avian assaults at the same London address that reportedly left two people dead. Perhaps the apparent lack of interest in these bizarre events has something to do with the scarcity of available information and the fact that the study of chimerical or folkloric entities, Nessie being the exception, is, generally speaking, a less popular pursuit than regular ghost hunting. The only other vaguely comparable relative of the Lincoln's Inn spook is Francis Bacon's Spectral Chicken, which is said to haunt Pond Square in Highgate, but bearing neither talons nor malice, this avian inspector is far less sinister. It is an interesting tale, though. By default, the feathered fiend of Lincoln's Inn was usually referred to as a bird. However, when the Daily Mail first reported on the case in 1901, it noted only that it was bird-like on account of the claw marks imprinted in the chalk dust left by the paper's shaken reporters. At least two deaths are directly associated with the entity, namely those of John Radlett and Charles Appleby, who were both young barristers. Furthermore, it was also believed that anyone who dwelt in the accursed chambers was doomed, as proved to be true in the case of the poet Lionel Johnson, who first brought the story to the attention of the press. The exact address where these strange events took place, 8 New Square, Lincoln's Inn, has never previously been disclosed and was only discovered accidentally whilst researching the life and death of poet Lionel Johnson. Although Johnson may be considered a minor poet, he is of some cultural significance and influenced the work of William Butler Yeats. Johnson's biographer, Ian Fletcher describes the poet during his time of lodging at 8 New Square in 1899 as having a haunted face. Ironically, six years before moving to Lincoln's Inn, Johnson penned his most widely known poem, The Dark Angel, which contains the following lines. Thou art the whisper in the gloom, the hinting tone, the haunting laugh. Thou art the adorner of my tomb, the minstrel of mine epitaph." Was there an element of precognition in the poet's words? Undoubtedly, Johnson's winged chimera, be it angel, demon, or bird, was a harbinger of evil. Certain birds are considered unlucky, and the entity at Lincoln's Inn appears to have alighted direct from the pages of Lewis Spence's classic book, The Encyclopedia of the Occult. Quoting from that book, "...and the night was troubled by evil and ominous winds blowing from the netherworld, heavy with the beating of innumerable wings of the birds of ill omen presaging woe." Since time immemorial, birds, especially black ones, have been seen as death's couriers. As Spence concurs, the South Sea Islanders bury their dead in coffins, shaped like a bird, to bear away their spirits, whilst the natives of Borneo represent Tempan Talon's ship of the dead as having the form of a bird. The Indian tribes of Northwest America have rattles, shaped like ravens. The probable significance is that the raven is to carry the disembodied soul to the region of the sun. Edgar Allan Poe's poetic tale of the ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore was well known by the time the Daily Mail first broke the story in 1901. But by 1913, the winged entity of Lincoln's Inn wasn't just death's emissary, but death itself. In February of that year, Charles Appleby was found dead with large claw marks on his arms and neck. The door and windows were apparently locked from the inside. Witnesses said that they had seen a man fighting a shadowy bird-like creature. Both the victim and the winged assailant were described as being of about the same height. Although there were no eyewitnesses in the second attack, John Radlett's especially sorry demise appears to have been largely identical to that of Appleby, except for the scratch marks found upon the door. That both of the men were barristers has more to do with the location of the assailant, Lincoln's Inn, having long been popular with those working in the legal profession. The rooms were in a particularly desirable spot, yet the high turnover of lodgers suggests that something was not quite right. Charles Dickens, who had once worked there in a solicitor's office, commented upon a peculiar fogginess about the area, and his bleak house features a sinister solicitor with the Lincoln's Inn practice. Rumors have long persisted that the square of Lincoln's Inn Fields was laid out by Inigo Jones to be exactly the size of the base of the Great Pyramid. Although Walter Thornberry, in his Old and New London, debunked the idea in 1878, pointing out that the fanciful idea is untrue, the fields measuring 821 feet by 625, while the Great Pyramid covers a space of 764 feet square. Noble blood, too, had been spilled on Lincoln's Inn's fields, Lord Anthony Babington having been hung, drawn, and quartered on its leafly bosom in 1586. He was said to have been still conscious while being eviscerated. A century later, William Lord Russell went to the chopping block there, accused of treason, despite cries for clemency. Russell's executioner, the notoriously cack-handed Jack Ketch, would later apologize for his clumsiness in carrying out the sentence. Thus Lincoln's Inn was an ideal setting for a winged and vengeful elemental to take roost. Given his keen interest in history and solitary nature, the neighborhood's antiquity and privacy would have suited the increasingly withdrawn Lionel Johnson. As he would later confide in anonymity to the Daily Mail, the surprisingly low rent also appealed, securing him comfortable chambers on the third floor, which were accessible by a separate staircase and sealed off from the rest of the house by a solid door. At night, the building was empty, save for a caretaker who had a basement room. It was not until Lionel fled the property and the journalist had validated his bizarre claims that the story broke on May 16th of 1901. Under the headline, A London Ghost, Inexplicable Happenings in Old Chambers, the Mail reported, My friend, filled up most of the wall space with books. He read and wrote and mused during most of the day and part of the night, and admitted in his more confidential moments that things happened. He did not specify exactly what occurred, but after a time he became nervous and fidgety. Last month he left the chambers rather suddenly, declaring he could stand it no longer. He cleared away his belongings, and once more the rooms were empty. The article also disclosed that there had been at least seven or eight tenants in two years. They had one and all left in a hurry, and the agents were anxious to let at almost any rent. Throughout the article, Johnson was identified only as a man of letters. However, the Daily Mail reporters didn't provide their names either, and thus, one of the major mysteries of the ghost hunter world become stranger still. Further details emerged in 1960 when East Anglian bird enthusiast, ghost hunter, and author James Wentworth Day reported on the story in The Age. He seems to have been the first to mention the deaths of Radlett and Appleby. In 1966, a writer called Tony Parker revived and reinvestigated the story under the title The Bird of Lincoln's End. Parker's article appeared in the popular anthology 50 Great Ghost Stories, edited by John Canning, which I have a copy of. It was Parker who revealed that the main author of the anonymous Daily Mail piece was the paper's very own news editor, Ralph D. Blumenfeld. His accomplice was Max Pemberton, then editor of Castles Magazine and later a director of Northcliffe Newspapers knighted in 1928. Both were eminent journalists of good character who had befriended Lionel Johnson. However, the fact that the story went out with no known author ensured its falling into obscurity. As Tony Parker was to note, when Blumenfeld finally did admit authorship well over twenty years afterwards, he was adamant that the story as he had written was true in every detail. I've heard a lot of ghost stories in my life, and I've seen a lot of reporters out on assignments to haunted houses. I don't believe in ghosts one way or the other, but I do know that thing happened. We both heard what we heard, felt what we felt, and saw what we saw, but don't ask for an explanation." Parker didn't ask, and in his telling of the story, he simply, yet eloquently, relayed the facts as given in the mail report. Except for two chairs and a table the apartment was completely empty when Blumenfeld and Pemberton arrived shortly after midnight, on Saturday, May eleventh, nineteen 1901. After locking the front door behind them, the two men carried out a thorough search of the premises. There was absolutely no possibility of anyone being hidden anywhere in the rooms. There were no cupboards, no recesses, no dark corners, and no sliding panels even a beetle could not have escaped unobserved. The walls were entirely naked. There were no blinds or curtains. Having scattered chalk dust on the floors, the two men returned to the main room and seated themselves at the table. We were both very wide awake, entirely calm, self-possessed, and sober, expectant and receptive, but in no way excited or nervous. The room seemed a little brighter than it might usually have done, as is often the case in empty apartments. For close to an hour nothing untoward occurred until the handle of the door closest to them turned, as if someone or something was trying to latch. Ten minutes later, the door to their left swung wide open, as did the original door. Finding no resistance, the reporters closed the doors tight and resumed their watch, but feeling less easy, the atmosphere having become tense. Blumenfeld began noting the times of the occurrences, which took place with increasing rapidity. At 140, both doors closed simultaneously of their own accord, swinging slowly and gently to about eight inches of the lock when they slammed with a slight jar and both latches clicked loudly. No matter how many times the men got up to close them, the doors would swing open once again of their own accord. This continued for a further two hours. Whatever the presence was, it was clearly unabashed by company. At a quarter to three, the two reporters could stand it no longer. But it wasn't until they made ready to leave the apartment that they discovered claw marks in the chalk dust. There were three toes and a short spur behind. The footprints converged diagonally toward the doors of the big room and each one was clearly and sharply defined. This broke up our sitting. Who knows what perils they might have faced had they stayed longer. Upon publication in the Daily Mail, The story raised considerable interest, garnering numerous inquiries and letters. The public wished to know the address, but for legal reasons, as the paper noted in a follow-up feature, it was not given. Perhaps if the address had been made public, rather than merely being alluded to when the paper ran the article, then Appleby and Radlett might have been spared their terrible fates. The most significant response came from the Society for Psychical Research. The society's secretary, Mr. E. T. Bennett, contacted the paper, stating, "One of the objects of the society is to carefully inquire into the alleged phenomena, apparently inexplicable by known laws of nature, and commonly referred to by spiritualists to the agency of extrahuman intelligence." This seems to me to be such a case and I shall certainly bring it before the members of the society. Unfortunately, it seems the SPR failed to follow through and as Tony Parker notes in his 1966 recap, this means there is a lack of further information regarding the case. Though a writer of some repute, Parker failed to realize that the man of letters referred to in the mail feature was in fact Lionel Johnson. Johnson passed away on October 4, 1902, at the age of 35, succumbing to years of poor health. In some accounts, he is said to have died a drunkard's death after falling from a Fleet Street barstool. Other sources note that he suffered a stroke and collapsed on the pavement outside. Sadly, then, the next reference to the avian horror was to be found in Johnson's obituary, with the Daily Mail noting, The deleterious effect of the accursed rooms upon all who stayed in them. Once again, the newspaper implored the SPR to act, but other than a passing mention in 1906, the story slipped from view until Wentworth Day and Tony Parker revived it in the 1960s. There's a further mystery, though. According to Tony Parker, when Ralph Blumenfeld eventually confessed to being the author of the 1901 Daily Mail report, Some 20 years after the event, he was still remarkably cagey concerning the location of the haunted rooms, being prepared to say that it was actually in London's Inn. He could not or would not give more details than that, and anyway, he said, it would be impossible to find as the house had been pulled down after the First World War and another building erected on its site. Perhaps Blumenfeld was still trying to protect the identity and reputation of his old friend, Lionel Johnson, and Parker just didn't catch on. Blumenfeld reassured him that there had been no hauntings in the new building. But the fact is that 8 New Square still stands, and while no further sightings of the winged and clawed entity have been reported, perhaps its evil presence lingers still. Whatever the truth, the story of the Bird of Lincoln's Inn carries a spectral resonance that appealed to none other than the Reverend of the supernatural, Montague Summers. In his volume of memoirs, The Galanity Show, Summers recalled the case, being particularly sympathetic to Lionel Johnson, whose frail specter, he believed, now haunted the area. The question remains, What was the thing in Lincoln's Inn? Was it a spectral bird? Or could it have been, perhaps, an invisible but very real winged demon? Given the description of sensations there? Personally, I'd vote demon. But why did the report stop? Did the thing depart? I don't know. What do you think? Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for being along for the ride. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. Aaron reads listener stories, mostly ghost stories, sometimes UFOs, sometimes cryptids. On Tuesday, Aaron Frail brings you Aaron's Horror Show, different things that he's written. He reviews movies, books, things like that. On Wednesday, it's me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments, where we talk about just about anything there is to talk about. And at the first weekend of the month, we have video from The Witching Hour and Unexplained Cases. Aaron has instituted a new area called Entertaining Short Films. That's exactly what they are. They're just short stories, short notes, if you will, and nothing in particular, no particular genre, just entertaining. Remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have Apple or Android, download the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. Download that to the device that you listen to the program on. Install it, and when you open that up, you can go straight to the Real Paranormal Activity the podcast and its network. So all the the stories that are involved with RPA are there, so you don't have to go hunting for them. If you want to contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments, you can do that on the Facebook page, and it's called Terry's Mysterious Moments. Or you can email me at terrysmysteriousmoments at gmail.com. Contact me if you want to. Let's talk about some things. That's about it. We'll be back soon. Hang in there. Listen to the other shows. Have a good week, everyone.